All right. Let's turn to the much. It's, it's dog-eared in your Bible. Just, just flip over to Zephaniah, please. <clears throat> just go to those. If Dr. Hannah was here, he'd just say, go to the prophets that sound like upper respiratory diseases. Just head to the middle of the Bible, go to the right, and you'll hit the whole list of them, and eventually you'll get to Zephaniah. If you hit Malachi, you've gone too far, or you could just turn to the back of your bulletin on page like, I think it's uh, 10, and you've got the text right there. Uh, obviously, we, those that are joining us have been with us, the series on the Ten Commandments, taking a little break from that. We'll pick that up next week. Um, here's an anonymous poem. You know, I've never used a poem. I never used poems, and good night. All I heard was poems growing up, so I think that's why I said no poems when I started preaching. But here's one. Anonymous poet wrote, When I was a child, I laughed, I wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran, right? Then when older still I daily grew, time flew. Soon I shall be traveling on and time is gone. Uh, Another year's tick by. And for some of us, uh, for many of us, it is ticked by uh, very slowly, uh, and for good reasons. I mean, some of you have been waiting on the iPhone that, and the iPod that came out for Christmas. So we just spent time up north in Edmond seeing Pete and his family as their church playing up there. He couldn't wait for Christmas because he was wanting to get the new iPhone, the G4, the one with, you know, the LCD, whatever. He would, couldn't wait for it. Others, it's the iPad. Uh, others are waiting on their first cell phone. Uh, some of you, this is the year you become a teenager, Right? And that might mean, maybe mean, uh, you have your first date or a first boyfriend. That doesn't happen in our house. They don't have their first date and their first boyfriend till their wedding day. That's what happens in our house. Now, you might be getting your driver's license for the first time this year. We had that happen this year. Can't believe it. Or you're waiting. This could be the year you graduate. You know, you're graduating, you're going off to college, you're going to be on your own for the first time. You can't wait for this year to go on. It's gone by way too slow. Or you're graduating from college and you're going on to the, the challenges of changing the world in your career. And then for others of you, you found the one. You know, you found God's one for you and you just can't wait because the wedding day is set and you can't wait for the dreams of your life together and all that you imagine and desire it to be, Right? And then for others of you, it's moving on into a new house. It could be a new career, exciting possibilities. You could be retiring and you're thinking of the endless possibilities and the things that you could do with time that you never knew you had before. Um, For others, it could be, gosh, this is the year that I get promoted and there's recognition finally. Uh, So for you, this past year has crept by, but it's crept by with high expectations, great expectations, wonderful desires, incredible uh, hopes and dreams that you have for this past year. But for others of you, this past year went by slow, not because it was waiting for the things that you were waiting for, but it went slow because it was a painful year. I mean, strained and broken relationships, dashed hopes. I mean, this is the year you really came to the realization that, you know what, I'm not who I thought I was. My life is not what I thought it would be. My marriage isn't what I thought it would be. I'm not who I thought I would be. I'm not as significant. I'm not as successful. 
I'm not as appreciated as I thought I would be. Your friendships aren't what you thought they would be. It's a painful year because it was a year of loss, too. You lost a loved one. Severe sickness entered your family. There's identified desperation in your life or in a loved one's life. You've been hurt by someone. There's job insecurity. There's financial stress. And it just tick. Tick. And that's the way the year went for you. Another year has ticked by. And as you come to this new year that's coming up, what does it hold for you? Do you know? What does this new year hope for you? I mean, you're beyond the resolutions. You could care less about resolutions because you're mature enough to know you never make them, keep them, do them anyway, right? But you're just wondering, how do I hold on this next year? What does this year have for you? You know what's absolutely fascinating about the book of Zephaniah is that it is a message for the new year, for Israelites and for God's people for generations and generations and generations. So let's stand for the hearing of God's word, Zephaniah 3. All right, we're going to look at 14 through 17. Now, the actual last uh, message or sermon, whatever you want to call it, is 14 through 20. But we're going to focus on 14 through 17. So here we go. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away all your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. Now, a better translation that's more in context with what the text is saying is that he will be quiet in his love over you. Okay? That seems to be the consensus by most of the, the scholars, and I, I agree with it in looking at the text. Now, he will exult over you with loud singing. The word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Lord, we, um, we so want to be able to rejoice in the days that you have made and be glad in them. And we know when we really think about it and when we really look at the scriptures, we know that the quality, the quantity, the reality of our rejoicing in the days that you've given us have got to come from a very deep and massive reservoir. For we know, if we're honest, and I think we're fairly honest here, that uh, years and days... Uh, as the scripture says, are evil, they're difficult, they're desperate. And so, Lord, how do you delight in the days you give when they're hard? Well, we look to you and we ask that what we're about to look at in Zephaniah, that you would open up our hearts and our eyes and you would unleash the realities of Zephaniah upon your people solely, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, solely, 
only because of what we sang earlier, the blood of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, I'm going to need to take periodic. Every time the weather changes, something happens to me. Jim, Tandy, we might have to see each other soon. Um, Zephaniah is a very fascinating book. It's a preacher's dream, really. And the reason why it's a preacher's dream is because there's one message for the whole book. So you don't have to go hunting and for these hidden points and messages that as you're moving through the book. The whole book is one message from beginning to end. It starts off with the single message. It is compelling. It's consistent. He never digresses from it. One single, unifying, compelling message of the whole book. Zephaniah is the pit bull prophet. He's a pit bull prophet not because he's vicious and he's angry. He's a pit bull prophet because he doesn't let go (laughs) of his single point. He latches on to it and he hangs on to it from beginning to end. Now, what is it? What's the single unifying message of Zephaniah? It's packed in what the prophets of Israel called, this little phrase called the day of the Lord. Now, that's loaded. The day of the Lord is loaded with otherworldly realities. It's one of these words that when you open it up, all heaven spills out of it. And you're trying, you can't, you can't keep it in. It is a loaded, massive, packed word. It is a word that talks about God showing up. And are you ready for this? This is your 10-cent word in a very eschatological way. In this otherworldly uh, supreme uh, visitation. It's loaded in historically. So don't start thinking because we're pulling out this word that it's otherworldly, it's not historical. It actually has three historical realities to it. It has an immediate historical reality. We could say a near history with it. When, when the Israelites hear it, it's associated with a future history that's coming in their near history. But it also has a, a distant history to it. It's, its horizons reach further beyond in Israel's history to another historical point in the world of God's economy. And then it has even a further distant meaning that it goes down to the end of all things. The day of the Lord is loaded. Now, what's going on here in Zephaniah, what the prophet is doing, what God is doing for us and for Israel is giving us a hope to hold on to in the face of a new year and the years to come. So he's actually pushing into Israel and pushing into you something very tangible that you can hold on to and hope in. That's what's going on. So if we were to look at what's the application, there's an application, and it's moving here. If you look at verse 16, here's the application of the message. So we're starting with the application. What's the message? You just know, I just know it's the day of the Lord. We'll figure out what that means. But the application is that you have some hope tangibly to hold on to as you face the new year. Whatever's coming at you in the new year, all right? Verse 16 is very fascinating. Let not your hands grow weak. Here's the application. Literally, it means let not your hands fall limp. Hands falling limp. Hands falling limp. What is it? I quit. Hands falling limp is the picture throughout the scriptures of one paralyzed with fear. It's seen in texts where it talks about armies 
their hands falling limp before the enemies before them. They can't even raise their weapons. They're just paralyzed, overcome with anxiety. Fear rules them. It's a picture of withdrawing from life, retreating into yourself. It could happen physically. You know, you physically retreat from life and shore yourself up because you're overcome with fear. Or you just emotionally certainly do it. You retreat from life. You retreat from your relationships. You retreat from the church. You retreat from meaningful interactions with people. You retreat from your job. Emotionally, you just disconnect. You shut down. You just can't. Hands fall limp. Circumstances, situations, difficulties, relationships, and people render you incapable of functioning. That's the picture here. Now, don't miss this. The point, the point is Zephaniah, whatever its message is, the point is don't fear. Do not fear. Do not let your hands fall limp. So that's the application, which is huge. So whatever the year brings, the text is saying, fear not, let not your hands fall limp at your side. So when you have strained and broken relationships, fear not, let not your hands fall limp at your side. When there's dashed dreams and dashed hopes that you come into realize this coming year, fear not. Do not let your hopes, do not let your hands fall at your side. When troubles and stresses and financial insecurity and whatever comes your way, the text is saying, do not fear. Fear not. Let not your hands fall at your side. All right? Now, it's even better, though. That's, that's, do you see that? Verse 16, that's one application. But also, verse 14 gives you another application. It's almost like the head side or the tail side. So it starts by, it starts by giving you the positive. We're starting with the negative. Fear not. Don't let your hands fall at your side. In verse 14, it's even better. Sing, shout, rejoice, exult. I mean, this is unbelievable. The rejoicing, the rejoicing is re-entering life. When you rejoice, you're in the game. When you're rejoicing, you're full of life. It's, this is life. I'm rejoicing. I'm shouting. I'm exulting. I'm actually all there. This is what being alive looks like. Rejoicing. Complete celebration. That's what the text is saying. So it means re-entering relationships. So it's just the opposite. The application. The The intent of the message is to cause you to not fear, to not let your hands fall limp at your side, but to rejoice and actually re-enter life. Re-enter the times that are at hand. Re-enter relationships. Even strained and broken ones. Re-enter responsibilities. Re-enter loving and serving others. Re-enter your children's lives. Re-enter your marriage. Re-enter your job. Re-enter your church. Re-enter life. Re-enter meaningful ministry. Re-enter reaching the lost. Re-enter talking to God, reading the scriptures, engagement of the sacraments, public worship. Re-enter biblical community biblical friendships, re-enter them, all right? 
Oh, Palmer Robertson, in his commentary in Zephaniah, he said, listen, the prophet is piling up every available expression for joy. Shout, rejoice, exult, sing. Fearlessness and rejoicing is what this passage is producing and meant to produce in you. This passage is meant to produce verse 14 and verse 16 in you. It's meant to generate it. It's meant to make it real. It's meant so that you become fearless. It's meant to make you rejoicing and reentering your life for Israel and for you. Now, what kind of message can do that? I mean, what kind of message has the power to do that? What kind of message can be unpacked, proclaimed from Zephaniah, unpacked in churches today that has the power to actually create fearlessness, that has the power to actually keep you from withdrawing and retreating into yourself, that has the power to actually turn you outside of yourself and to reenter life? That's the question of the text. What has that kind of power. What is it? Well, let's get going here. Uh, Zephaniah opens with a vision of world disaster. In fact, one Old Testament scholar wrote, one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God and judgment found anywhere in Scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. The very order of creation is overturned. In other words, the very beginning of the book opens up with a cosmic disaster that reaches everything. Creation turns upside down. We've seen this before when we looked at Genesis. We've seen this before as we looked in Exodus. There is a a decreating reality taking place. So creation comes together, it's order, it's shalom, it's peace, it's wholeness, it's harmony, it's prosperity, it's flourishing, it's everything. And God goes, and in Genesis, he hovers over the chaotic mass, and he forms creation and makes it that way. And then the flood comes in creation, and the flood is a decreating reality. It's undoing creation, sending it into the pit, sending it into darkness, sending it into flood. But what we get in this Zephaniah in the opening verses is a decreation that is cosmic and world-encompassing, and it touches everyone. So the first beginning of the book goes in and shows how it hits the nations, those outside of Israel. And then what must have been absolutely shocking to the Israelite is when it came in and, and went into their shores, came into their beach, and it went within Israel. That was shocking when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom away and Judah was left with Assyria surrounding them. And then a new turmoil coming up over here called Babylon. All right? So cosmic disaster is what Zephaniah and what the prophets call the day of the Lord. Cataclysmic. Decreation on a massive, universal, cosmic scale. Now, the day of the Lord dominates Zechariah. This is his pit bull message. That's it. He's a one-sermon prophet. So when he visited churches, this is what he pulled out. 
And then the following week when he went down to Daytona, this is what he pulled out to the college kids. And the following week when he was asked to preach to the women uh, conference in Atlanta, this is what he preached. And then when he went up and did the uh, leadership for the national denomination and talked to all the other pastors, this is what he preached. He was a pit bull prophet. The day of the Lord. And that is why... (laughs) That is why when you get to verses 14 through 17, it is an utter shock. This is why verses 14 through 20 are so out of place. The final call, the final sermon, the final message, the final whatever, the summons of Zephaniah for the whole book is not lamentation but celebration. And it makes it even more significant when you realize that the contemporary of Zephaniah was Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations. And so what you have here is not sadness, distress, desperation, depression, retreat. We're all doomed which seems to be what the call and the summons, what the sermon and the message should be in light of the day of the Lord. What you have instead is a grand summons here to sing, to shout, to rejoice, and to exult. And that is out of place. Something very mysterious and very massive is going on in this message. And I'm going to say it right now because I really believe it. And it's beyond us. What I'm about to talk about in the next 15 minutes is beyond belief. And some of you here are going to be thinking, no, I've understood that since I was six. And I will say to you, no, you don't. Okay, here we go. Some call Zephaniah 3.17 the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Remember John 3.16? Those of us that don't have a church background, John 3.16, you've seen it even if you haven't heard it, you've seen it. You'll see it at the end. You saw it this weekend at the end zones. 3.16, you'll see that text. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's probably the most well-known verse in all of the world. All right? Many call Zephaniah 3.17, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. So here it is. Look, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one. This literally means a mighty hero, a mighty warrior. So this is someone who's absolutely invincible. This is a warrior that's uncalculated. This is a warrior that when he steps onto the battlefield, it's, it's all enemies, the most valiant of them, gasp and retreat. This is a warrior and a hero that when he steps on the battlefield, it is quiet. And notice what the text says. He will say. There's no doubt. You don't have to hope that he does. Maybe he will. He will. So we have the beginning. The Lord your God is in your midst. Who is he? Well, he's a mighty warrior who will save. 
and he will rejoice over you with gladness. This is, means that God, God can't wait. The picture here is that God can't wait to see you. He can't wait. And when he does, he loves and delights to see you. He runs to welcome you. I remember when I was going to propose to my wife, and I flew in from Almaty to Moscow to surprise her. Oh, the time just flew by. I was just so content and just couldn't wait to chat up with the, the Russian next to me that I understand a word he was saying. And I couldn't wait to chat up with the Tartar over here and ask him how his week was and whether he was on a business trip or not. I mean, I was just completely, you know, relaxed. I couldn't wait. Couldn't wait to see her. You couldn't hold me back. Get me out of the airport, flagging taxis. Let's go. You're not fast enough. You are. Let's go. And we're off and running. Do you know how to speed? Yes, I know how to speed. Speed. Well, you don't have to tell a Russian taxi cab driver to speed. Couldn't wait to see her. And it's the same way for her now. I mean, she, she can't wait to see me when I come home from work. I mean, it's like... She's looking at the clock, waiting for me to come home, delights to see me, sees me, her face lights up, and then she hands me tie. <laughs> she can't wait. Also, it says, the text says, it will quiet you by his love. Now, remember, we're seeing the translations better. He will be quiet in his love over you. This is almighty God quietly contemplating contentedly you. This is a contemplation that arises out of the core of God's character as he massively thinks about you and is quiet in a deep, as deep can be, love for you. It is a silence that comes out of the center of the core of his being, which, by the way, is love. And he is quiet in his love over you. And then notice the next text. It says he will exult over you with loud singing. I mean, I, I, can you even imagine that? What would it be like if God sang? <laughs> I mean, I never even thought of him singing. We sing, right? In the scriptures, you got... All of God's creatures singing. You got creation singing. You got, if you don't sing, the rocks are going to sing. So we got us singing. We got us worshiping. But hardly, I didn't even think about it. You get to this text and God's singing. He opens up his mouth and what he's singing is you. I mean, the closest thing I can think about it, if I'm going to try to get my mind and heart around it, is... The new Texas Stadium, 120,000 seated fans. Well, standing room only, Super Bowl, Cowboys in it. And at the last play of the game, they score and win the Super Bowl. And 120,000 fans jump to their feet. That's as close as I can get. This verse is beyond belief. This verse is too good to be true. So what do we do with it? Well, the challenge is to believe it, right? 
And then you got to ask yourself, well, how does God get us to believe something like this? And then this is where we, we, we spin off and start disbelieving it because we don't think that the way he would go about causing us to believe it would actually be the way. According to the scripture, from beginning to end, the way he actually is going to get you and I to believe this is through suffering and difficulty and distress. Because what happens there is that in the suffering and the difficulty and the distress, he reveals your heart and reveals you to yourself. I mean, again, all of us believe this at one level. We all say, of course I believe this. I believe this since I was a youth or I tell my kids this. In one way we believe it, but in another way we don't believe it. We don't believe it in our heart's appropriation of it. We don't believe it in our heart actually sinking into it and it becoming real in our experience and it actually, actually affecting the way I interact with other people and the way I interact in life and the way I deal with conflict and the way I resolve things and the way, whatever it is, we actually really don't believe it. And so how do we believe it? Well, what ends up happening is God told in Peter, we're told in James, we're told throughout scriptures, we're told in Israel, which is what's happening in Zephaniah, we suffer. And in the suffering, he reveals your heart to you, that you really don't believe it. And now here's the tension. The tension is when that happens, we don't think that's the path. And we say, he can't love me. And he is no more in love with you than he could be because he's actually making you get it. And so when the difficulty comes, he's revealing you to you and he's pushing in, making real Zephaniah 3.17 to you. So there's going to be this time when you're in difficulty, you're going to see it. It's going to be this crossroads. You're in difficulty and you're going to say to yourself, God hates me. He's against me. He's not giving me what I want. This is not what I was after. Or he loves me and he's pursuing me and he's revealing me to me, revealing my heart to me, and he's after making his love more real to me. There's your crossroads right there. Okay. Now, the other way, I'll get just another quick example that we really don't believe this. Think about the amount of energy we all spend and the amount of pressure we feel to generate, produce, and manufacture our own meaning in life. Think about the amount of energy emotionally. And the way you can find it is when you don't get what you want, what happens to you, right? So think about the amount of energy and the amount of time and the amount, trying to generate and create and establish our own value and our own meaning in life and our own righteousness. Think about how much we do that. And the way we do it, we try to generate our own meaning in life and we try to do it and we find it through self-indulgence. That's going to give it to me or through someone's opinion of us or their respect or some success and some achievement or some child or some relationship or not having something and and we go on and on and on we are this way because verse 17 is not real to us that's the point so Spurgeon said it this way he said you cannot expound if you're a preacher verse 17 of Zephaniah without remembering the silence of Jesus what? That's what I said. What? What are you talking about? 
And then he went on. The silence of Jesus at his trial. Okay? The silence of Jesus at the crucifixion. Okay? Isaiah puts it this way, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus' silence, Spurgeon posits, plums the depths of his love for sinners. Jesus' silence is the fulfillment of 317 when God is quiet in his love over you. The silence of Jesus is the contemplative, contented, plummeting the depths of his massive and mysterious love for you. In other words, Jesus loves me, this I know is the message of Zephaniah. In other words, it's proven that he loves me, this I know, because he was silent on the cross, not loud. He didn't do what Pilate, remember what Pilate tempted him to do? He didn't call his battle host to come get him. And all he had to do was wink. He didn't turn to the very ones that he created as they spit on him and abused him And as he hangs on the cross and has two thieves on each side of him, the complete humiliation, the complete rejection, is there a fuller measure of rejection? Is there a fuller measure of infinite agony than the one who creates the ones that are jeering him? And he stays there, quiet and silent, as he contemplates, quiet in his love over sinners that deserve to be in his place. He proves it by taking the full force of the day of the Lord upon himself. That's how he proves his love for you. So this cataclysmic, this day of the Lord message of Zephaniah, certainly, yes, it's going to find its historical immediate fulfillment in the Babylonians taking out Judah. Yes. And certainly it's going to come in the form of the final, the the far, far, far distant End day when the king shows up and he stands on heaven and earth and everything is done. Certainly. But the final, the best, the beautiest, the sweetest fulfillment of the day of the Lord happens on the cross when cosmic disaster is poured out on the Son of God and he's silent in his love over you. That is amazing. So he'll, re, he'll rejoice over you with gladness. He's quiet in his love over you. And then he, he sings. 
over you. Palmer Robertson said, the Almighty God, that Almighty God should derive delight from his own creation is significant in itself. Yeah, that's significant. I mean, that God delights and loves his creation, that's significant. But that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. All right, let's wrap it up by applying it, and maybe this will help make it real, okay? Uh, Now, when we look at verses 14 through 16, it makes a little more sense now. Let's kind of fill it in. I'm going to be, it's going to be my translation from this text, but I'm going to skip around. Look what, now listen to the text in light of, in light of Jesus taking the full force of the day of the Lord. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, and we can say to the church, fear not, O people of God, fear not. Let not your hands fall limp at your side, but rather sing, shout, rejoice, exult, right? Why? Because Jesus loves you. This I know, because he proved it in his quiet love for me. His silence in the cross. Professional biblical counselor, seminary professor Ed Welch counseled a young woman named Jane. Jane had an abortion 10 years ago and she's been depressed ever since. She still feels guilty about what she's done. Her friends have been faithful to talk to her about the forgiveness of sins, have been faithful to be there for her, to encourage her, to speak to her about the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus. Jane knows she's a Christian. She knows the truth of the cross, but it doesn't seem to matter. Welch goes on to say, it's like her guilt is a resistant virus that's immune to the gospel. Well, why is the gospel irrelevant to Jane? I mean, she believes it. Why is it irrelevant? Watch what Welch says. It's absolutely, he absolutely nails it. He says, because for Jane, forgiveness of sins, God's love, freedom, life, fearlessness... Not withdrawing, not having your hands at your side, but deep rejoicing and shouting and enjoyment of God and enjoyment of re-entering life comes through Christ plus not having an abortion. Did you catch that? It comes through. Those things come through Christ plus not having an abortion. Did you see the addition? Did you see the new law that was just added? The addition, the new law, is what traps her in fear. The addition, not having abortion as the basis for her to be able to experience forgiveness, to be worthy enough for God to love her, for John 3.16 to be true and for Zephaniah 3.17 to be true, she has to have, not have abortion in her record and her resume. So then he goes on to say, having violated her beliefs and her standards, she had to be punished. And so she's been punishing herself for 10 years. She's been self-atoning for her own sin for 10 years. If we were to put it in our language through the Ten Commandments, it would be this. She's trying to save herself 
through her standard of not having an abortion. And that virus, which is called legalism, keeps the gospel from penetrating the depths of her heart. All right. Now, Zephaniah says, the Lord's taken away the judgments against you. Zephaniah says that forgiveness and freedom and life and significance and feeling good about yourself and re-entering life and singing and exulting and being alive, being all there, engaging with real life, he says it's based on Christ alone. He says it's based on the day of the Lord poured out on the Son of God. Only. No additions. No new laws. No pluses. So through the silence of Jesus on the cross, God rejoices, exults over you. So the question is, as you go into this new year, I want you to ask the Lord to help you identify what is your addition to that? What is your new law? Ask him to show you. Because whatever the addition is to that, to the day of the Lord poured out on Jesus, whatever the addition is, whatever the new law is, that's what's killing you in the new year. That's what's making you fear. That's what keeps your hands falling limp at your side. That's what causes you to withdraw from life. That's what causes you to retreat into yourself. That's what's going on. Okay? So now, this new year, take your addition, your new law, and take it to the cross. Take it to the silence of Jesus and his love for you on the cross. And watch your hands come to life. Watch you come to life. Watch singing, exaltation, and rejoicing become real to you. Because Jesus loves you.